let me, let's talk afterwards. I want to share, I want to share with you, I have to give you a little background to these studies so you understand how these things were put together. And uh, right now, um, um, My Bible First is in the process of editing them. And they have asked permission of Amazing Facts because we've used a lot of their material in it. So Amazing Facts has given permission for that. And so they're in the process now of doing it. And it's a full gospel presentation, but it's through the sanctuary. And I'll talk to you more about it. I don't see how in the world, listen, I shouldn't have been the one to do it. I mean, I, I mean that in all honesty. Um, you know, th th I'm not going to say it's perfect. You know, somebody, you know, everybody always has a critique. And people come to me and they say, you know, you could have done this or this. And I look at them there and I tell them, I say, look, I'm not trying to be arrogant here. They're the best studies on the planet. It's a sanctuary. You can't go wrong. And they say to me, how do you know? I say, because they're the only ones. I tell them, if you can do better than this, dear brother, do it. For pity's sake, we need something. Nobody was doing it, so I put this together. So yeah, it's going to have defects. I was involved. But, but the thing is that we need this. because the, And to me, it's a, it's a hole in our armor that is a mile wide. Because the Christian world is ready. Look, right now, Messiah's Mansion, wherever they go with that thing, are averaging about 2,500 people a week. You show me an evangelistic series that's bringing in 2,500 people a week. There isn't one. What an opportunity to use the Messiah's mansion. If the, if the attention is being drawn because of, the Messiah's, because of the sanctuary, how can we not follow it up with a series on the sanctuary? So you can use Messiah's mansion as pre-work. When they come in, they're come, and they're, they're, you don't have to even mail the stuff. They're coming, you're putting it in their hand and saying, look, we're going to have study deeper uh, in, in two weeks. Why don't you guys come? What an awesome opportunity. They already have an interest. It's not bait and switch. You bring them in and then turning something else on them. You're giving them what they want. And it's interesting. When you study what Ellen White has to say about presenting our difficult truths, she says, start with the things that we agree upon. And when you look at the sanctuary, Jesus is the only way. He is our sacrifice. We commit our lives to him. We need the Holy Spirit, the study of the word, the time of prayer. You have angels here, so you use that as your springboard to introduce the great controversy theme. So what's happened is now you have established them in a relationship with Christ. When you come into the Most Holy, that's where all the rest of it, the prophetic section, everything is here. And so now you're teaching them the difficult portions in the context of a relationship with Christ. Now you're building on something. And so what we do many times is we try to come into the back door, and it doesn't work. We're not as successful. It's not applicable to the life. We haven't connected it with what Christ is doing in the most holy place. I think there's value in that, but you have to connect it with, with, with God's saving work because that's what the sanctuary is about. And so many times I've listened to our people give the sanctuary talk, and it's no different than the way the Sunday keepers are doing it. They're, we're not connecting it with the most holy place work. And, uh, but like I said, the impact it's having on people is amazing. I don't know how uh, uh, Messiah's Mansion is doing, but 
Um, they now have one running on the West Coast. They have one running in the East Coast. They now have one running in Canada. They're getting one starting in Mexico. Can you imagine if we had these studies and we gave it to them? They could be selling it wherever they go. In May of 2010, in one week, Masai's Mansion had 11,000 people go through. And in two weeks, in Loma Linda, they had 15,000. And so there is an interest. The door is opening to us. We got to get our stuff ready. So I put together these studies. And could they be better? Yes, they could be better. And I welcome anyone who will make them better. But nobody's coming forward. So we have this. And it takes them all the way through. And you'll be familiar with it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So if Yeah, we're getting ready to produce them. Okay. Yeah. We'll send them right over to you. Just follow my Bible first. But I want to share with you a little bit more of the... Okay. Do we have to, let's just do it right now. When I was um, in Hendersonville, we had an active church. I mean, with evangelism, we were active. We were doing two, three evangelistic efforts a year. My youth were doing it. My youth were preaching, giving the health talks. My youth were doing the music, the visitation. I mean, they were doing everything. Mm -hmm. And we had a very active church. And, and we had planned for Messiah's Mansion to come out. And I shared with you how 3,500 people came out for that. Um, well, the senior pastor and I said, why don't we? It only makes sense to do an evangelistic series right behind it. Since, we, since what brought him out was a sanctuary, let's do a series on the sanctuary. And he said, let's do it. So it was done. Well, my senior pastor comes down with cancer. We have a church of about 700 people. And so now um, the youth pastor is running the church and an extremely active youth department. Now, when I say active, we're not doing clown ministry. We're not doing pantomiming. We're not doing puppets. We're not, my kids were learning how to spread the gospel message. And, and I'm not knocking those who in their ignorance are doing things the other way, but it's not effective. Christ's method alone brings to success. And so then, um, so we have Messiah's Mansions coming, and I am just frazzled. So I am working, trying to get all this. And for three months, my past senior pastor's out. When he finally comes on board, he says to me, George, do you have the studies? And I said, I haven't had time to research it. So now I begin research to find the studies. I call Amazing Facts. I call Seminars Unlimited. Uh, I, I mean, I called everybody who has anything to do with the sanctuary, and I discovered there's no studies. So I come to him, and I say, there's no studies. It's not out there. And Darwin Whitman? I... Does he have studies on the sanctuary full gospel presentation? He was the one that was doing it for a long while before I I haven't seen it. I, I would like to see this. If you can email this to me, I would like to look at it. Because I, I have never seen him. But, so there were no studies. And I talked to, so my senior pastor, and this is six weeks before the, before, um, the series is supposed to begin. Six. <laughs> and so my senior pastor comes to me and he says, George, you like the sanctuary, why don't you make them? And um, I did not want to do that. And I wrestled with God in prayer. Listen, I, I share with you I'm ADD. I'm the ADD poster child. And I am so busy in my district. I, I'm a workaholic. And to sit down and do this, to, sit me, to have me sit still is very challenging. And, and the idea of doing this, I thought, there is no way. And I wrestled against it. 
And a friend of mine, every time I looked for the studies, it was always this stuff you mentioned, blue means mist. And I thought, I can't use this stuff. It's not going to work. And all of our sanctuary studies go to 12. I need a full gospel presentation. And, and over the years, I've been collecting anything that has to do with the sanctuary. I've always been fascinated. Any article, I'd cut it out and I'd collect it. I have stacks. I have books. Read it and highlighted. And... Um, and a friend of mine sent me an email, no, a fax, and she said, and she gave me 12 studies. You can do this, 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 and this. And of course, it always ends in 12. And I, I went to bed that night. I couldn't sleep. About 2 in the morning, I walked out, and I was in tears. I said, Lord, this is too much for me. I'm not geared for this. I'm not prepared for this. I don't know how to do this. You've got to have somebody else. Other people are better at this than I am. And uh, I had no peace. And I walked over to that piece of paper, and I looked at it. And... Um, and I said, no, that's not right. It should be this. No, you need to have this study here. No, let's move this one here. And when I was done, I had 24 lessons. I had 24 titles. And I said, hey, you know what? This can work because the sanctuary tells you what to preach on. If you just follow the sanctuary, it will tell you what the next sermon's supposed to be. And so uh, anyway, so my senior pastor, I had six weeks. In six weeks, we came out with 24 lessons. And what I did is I surrounded myself with all kinds of Bible studies and all kinds of books, and I amalgamated it. <laughs> it's an amalgamation. And in six weeks, those studies were ready to go. And I'm going to share with you one of the studies now. And it's the study of the operation of the judgment to understand how it works. And when you understand it, you will no longer be afraid of God. We're going to look at that one next. But that's your background. And so a lot of my springboard was historicals. So you'll see similarities in there. And that's why we got permission from Doug. So, but we'll go ahead and, uh, but, but stay tuned for that. Are you ready to go? All right, so you got a freebie in there. And we're going to look at the good news of the judgment. Tomorrow, what we're going to look at... Um, is going to be how the sanctuary explains to us the reason why Christ has not returned. The sanctuary will tell us. Oh, man. Wait till you see this. <laughs> I love it. I love the sanctuary. Don't you? Yeah. I love the message of the sanctuary. Thank you, my brother. And then the ones that are left over, if you can leave them there on the steps. And then again, the last one, what we're going to do is we're going to take an overview of of the three phases of the judgment so we can just kind of get a bird's eye view of how it operates. And in the process, the character of God will really shine through as being very fair, very reasonable, and, um, and he will be vindicated and very respectful of our, of our power of choice. All right, with that, why don't we begin uh, with a word of prayer? Can we do that? Once more, let us kneel before the Master. Lord, we are so thankful for the things you have taught us. And uh, we praise your name for the things we are learning. Lord, you know how forgetful we are. But we are reminded in John 14, 26, that it is the role of the Holy Spirit to bring our remembrance the things we have forgotten. And so, Lord... Uh, we trust that you will do this for us, especially as we go through this, this study. I pray that you will piece this thing together, then in the minds of the students, they will see uh, a much broader picture, begin to understand how these things fit together. I thank you for that so much. 
and I praise you for your love and kindness. Draw near to us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this may need to be edited out, but there's one thing that I failed to mention in the battle with sin that I really wanted to bring to your attention. You know, I have a, I have a study that's entitled um, A Deeper Look into the Second Apartment Experience, and I break this down even more. But there was one thing I did want to share with you. You know, sometimes, remember I shared with you uh, how I struggled with, with, a, with cursing, with a foul mouth? The Lord later showed me that in the battle with sin, sometimes we're feeding the sin and not realizing it. You know that a firefighter, when he comes into a burning building and there's, there's uh, chemicals or whatnot burning and the whole wall's on fire, if he comes in with his hose and he washes down the hose to put out the fire, by the time he's down here, what happened? The fire is up there again. Why? Because the source is down here. He's not going after the source. And for example, in my cursing, I had to stay away from those sources that were cursing and strengthening that in me. I had to choke that off. Does that make sense? And so sometimes if you have something in your life that you keep struggling with, ask the Lord, Lord, is there something that in my life that's feeding this? Uh, sometimes it could be something blocking it. For example, one of the biggest things that I see within the church is a lack of forgiveness. If somebody has done something wrong to us, uh, we refuse to forgive. Remember that forgiveness is a gift. Um, it's something God has to, has to work has to do in us. Are you with me? When we allow him to. But anyway, I just went through that quickly. I just felt we needed to add that before we get into this. But we're going to look now at the good news of the judgment. When we talk about the judgment, uh, it's hard for people to think of it as good news. People are usually terrified of the judgment. Yet, when you study the Old Testament writer, he did not have that attitude. The Old Testament writer welcomed judgment. He wanted judgment because ju they understood that judgment meant vindication of the righteous. It meant the condemnation of evil. And so, David, you hear him crying out, judge me, O God. They understood judgment to be a good thing. But the devil has since warped that. And we find ourselves afraid of the judgment. So we are people who preach that the judgment began in October 22, 1844, but nobody studies it. We agree with it, but we don't even know what it's about and how it works. And we're scared to death of it. But we're going to find that, by the grace of God, that attitude will change today. Number one. Can we be certain that there will be a judgment? Acts 17.31 says, God has appointed what? A day on which he will judge what? The world. And we know that the judgment began in October 22, 1844. And let's take a look at number two. How does Daniel describe the judgment scene when Jesus moves from the holy place to the most holy? Let's stop right there. I think this will be interesting to you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. When Jesus went into heaven, he went into the holy place, not the most holy. There are some out there who are trying to tell us he went into the most holy. It's not true. Go ahead. So he went into the holy place, not the most holy. Not the most holy. He went into the holy place. And um, this is very significant. And what we're going to find is that in the holy place, the throne of God was there. 
while Jesus was there. Now, we're looking at the holy place. Amen? If I were to say to you, what, it, what would you describe as being to the right of the menorah? How would you... What, go ahead. The, the door would be the right. What would be to the left of the menorah? Okay. What would be before the menorah? The table of showbread. Did you catch that? This is before. Now watch this in Revelation chapter 4. And let's pick up in verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit, John is in vision, and behold, a, thro a throne set where? Are you there, Revelation 4? In heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now look at number five. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, and there were seven lamps of burning, where? Before the throne. And so, in the holy place, when Jesus ascended after the, after the cross, he came here. And he began his ministration. Um, but the throne was located here. Now the book Ezekiel, uh, in the description of the throne, what does the throne have? Do you remember? It has something. It has wheels. If it has wheels, what's the implication? It moves. It moves. So on the Day of Atonement, that throne is here. Now the scene we're about to read is a movement scene. These people are coming from somewhere. Watch. Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, and 14. I watched till thrones were put in place. Were they in place before? No, because they had to be put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. Was he seated before? No. His garment was white as wool, his hair, uh, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. It's what? Wheels, a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. Were they seated before? No. The books were what? Open. I was watching the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So what we're seeing here is a movement scene, the beginning of the final phase of the, investiga or of, of the plan of salvation, which is the judgment. Does that make sense with me so far? Okay. So let's take a look at number three. Who will be brought into this judgment? 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must appear, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Dear friends, do you realize that we're living in a very sober but happy time? Happy because Jesus is about to finally do away with our, the sin issue and, and, and come to take us home. Sober because we have to be vigilant because the devil does, wants to steal our crown. You know, I grew up in L.A. and uh, sometimes... I would see police officers go to people's doors and, and subpoena them. If a police officer showed up at your door and subpoenaed you, would that get your attention? You're going to court now. Is that going to consume your thoughts? Aren't you going to wonder what you're charged with? Aren't you going to want to find a lawyer? We're living in a time 
when we need a lawyer. Isn't that right? We need to be mindful. This is a sober time. And, 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 and God wants us to be paying attention to what's going on up there. Let's take a look at number four. With which class will the judgment begin? 1 Peter 4.17 For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who did not obey the gospel? Uh, Peter makes a very interesting statement. First of all, he says it begins with the house of God. You remember that, that when the sin was confessed on the lamb and the blood was taken, it was transferred to the sanctuary. Those are the sins that are dealt with. It's only, it only addresses the sins of those who are transferred to the sanctuary. Are you with me? Do the wicked do that? Do the wicked ask for their, for their sins to be transferred? No. So that's why Peter asked the question, what will be the end of those who did not obey the gospel? Let me show it to you a different way. Open your Bibles to um, John chapter 3. And this is a very uh, well-known text. I'm going to begin with this one, then I'm going to jump to the one I want you to see. John, okay, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. See, all of us are born in a lost, not born, all of us, the moment we sin, are in a lost condition. The only way out is through Jesus. We default. We're lost. Done. Over. The only way out is through Jesus. Now look at 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is what? Condemned what? Already. So, so in the investigative judgment, God only investigates the sins of those <clears throat> who had accepted Jesus as their Savior. That's the only people investigated. The, the, those who never asked are, are, are sent into a later part, a later phase of the judgment. They don't enter into the first one. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, let's take a look at number five. Who is the prosecuting attorney? All we're doing, yes, sir. Very good. You know that even in our court system, if, if you have been summoned, your lawyer can represent you. You don't have to be there. Does that make sense? So Jesus can represent us without us being there. You with me? All right. Revelation 12. Okay, who is the prosecuting attorney? The Bible tells us. Revelation 12, 9 and 10. The, drake, the great dragon uh, called the devil and Satan the accuser of our brethren. Who's the one that's accusing us before the Father? Who is it? It's Satan. Let's open our Bibles to John 16. John chapter 16. I used to have this picture of the judgment. Are you ready? God... Jesus standing between me and God and Jesus saying, look, uh, not this one. 
Don't, don't hurt this one. I, I died for this one. I protect, leave this one. Do you ever get that picture? God is like, let me at him. The Father, let me at him. And Jesus standing between me and the Father saying, no, no, not this one. Right? Have you ever gotten that picture? The Lord, the Lord says, hey, he did it. Let's get him. And Jesus saying, no, 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 no. My blood, let's... Do you know what I'm saying? That is an incorrect picture. Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Remember, dear friends, for God so loved the world that he gave. Right? This is a warped picture of the Father. Let's take a look at another text. Let's take a look at, verse, at Luke. Luke 12. Luke 12. And let's look at verse... Thirty-two. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is what God wants to do. Are you with me? The Father is not out there trying, accusing us. The one who's accusing us is the Prince of Darkness. But now I'm going to show you something else that's going to blow your mind. Take a look at number uh, six. Well, well, it's two things. Number six, who is the defense of attorney? 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have a what? An advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So who's your lawyer? Now, are you ready for this next one? The Father has no role in the judgment. He's present, but he has no active role. Did you know that? Take a look at the next text. Who's the judge? John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So not only is Jesus your lawyer, he's the judge. You kind of like that setup? But the Father is, it's not this picture of Jesus standing between us and the Father. Jesus is the judge. Are you with me? Okay. Now, by the way, Jesus is qualified because he entered into our experience. He was tempted at all points as we are. Are you with me? He is worthy. Let's take a look at number eight. Our study of the Bible will reveal three phases to the judgment. Phase one is the investigation of the righteous. A, if not guilty, they are acquitted, they are set free. And that is as we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we have accepted his righteousness, both imputed and imparted. A life yielded and surrendered to his leading, obedient to all his commandments, will be the result. Are you with me? And so the books are opened, and, uh, and they look, and they see the blood of Jesus has, 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 has obliterated the sin. And then they say next. By the way, I want to share this with you also. This is a personal conviction of mine. I shared with you that in 1898, Ellen White made the comment that Christ could have come year long before now, right? I often hear people say, you know, when, whenever the judgment of the dead ends, um, then God will transfer to the judgment of the living. Could Ellen White have made the comment that Christ could have come by 1898 if he wasn't finished with the judgment of the, of the dead? Are you with me? We're going we're gonna to look at our next study as to why Christ hasn't come, and the sanctuary tells us why. 
the sanctuary tells us why. But let's keep going. Um, now phase two, okay, or B. If found guilty, in other words, uh, they either reneged on their initial commitment uh, with Christ, uh, or they, they never really made it. I mean, they never followed through with it. If guilty, then they, then they proceed to phase two and three of the judgment. In phase two of the judgment is the sentencing stage of the wicked. In other words, the punishment meets the, the crime. Phase three is the executive portion of the judgment when the sentence is carried out. These are the three phases. So the judgment is in three parts. You with me? What are the books talked about in Daniel 7.10? Well, one is the book of iniquity or of sin, De uh, Jeremiah 2.22. Uh, Yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord of God. So there's one of the books. The other is the book of remembrance, Malachi 3.16. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So there's a book of our bad deeds, a book of our good deeds. Then there's the book of life, Revelation 3.5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So in the book of life, everyone who has, who has asked Jesus into their life, their name is written there. An investigation is done to make sure it stays there. Make sense? Feel free to ask questions, please. And as I said, I don't claim to know everything. I'm sharing with you what I know. Number 10, at least to this point in my life. Number 10, what is the standard by which all will be judged? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether, whether it is evil. And when we look at the law, it's not just the law in written form, but the law in living form. Who's the law in living form? It's Jesus. Jesus is the standard. That's why we behold Jesus and not one another. Uh, James 2.12 says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by what? The law of liberty. And by the way, that's why I'm sharing, as I shared with you in New Words for Witnessing, that when we begin to explain the judgment process to our, to our Sunday keeping friends, they begin to connect the dots when they see that the standard is the law. And so it is the law for us as well. Let's look in the note below 10. The divine law is not something that exists apart from God. It is the outflowing of his essential personality. It is simply the reflection of his character. This law is the standard by which the characters and the lives of men will be tested in the judgment. That's it. It's interesting, by the way. Law, love, righteousness, and holy all are the same thing. It is a reflection of the character of God. Let's look a look at number 11. What will the judgment bring to light? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. For God will bring every work into judgment. Did I just say this? Including every secret thing. And in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, every what? Idle word. So if we don't want to face it in the judgment, don't say it. Number 12, what is Jesus seeking to accomplish in his followers, the church, through the judgment process? Uh, Ephesians 5, 25 and 27 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having what? Or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without what? Blemish. Does, in what better, in what clear imagery could God reveal a people that are not living in sin? I mean, look at the imagery. Glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but holy and without blemish. And I'm going to flesh that out a little more in my next study. Number 13. What happens if a sin remains on the books, unrepented of and unforsaken? Exodus 32:33 says, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Ezekiel 18.24, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty. And the sin which he has committed, he shall what? He shall die. And so his good deeds are removed from the book of life. Don't panic on me. Look at 14. But what if I have repented of my sin and have turned from it and by faith have claimed the blood of Jesus as my atoning sacrifice? Will my sins be blotted out and my name remain in the book of life? Isaiah 43.25 answers that. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake and I will not remember your what? Your sins. Revelation 3.5 he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Does, are you okay? Are you with me now? Are you? Does that make sense? Go ahead. We're going to flesh that out in the next study more deeply. That's the big issue. This is the way I look at it. To me, it's simple logic. All I have to determine is this. Is that what God is requiring of me? If the answer is yes, then evidently it's doable. Why would God call me to do something that's, that can't be done? That would be, that would be sadistic. So all I have to determine, is that what God is expecting? If the answer is yes, then the next question is, how? How becomes the next question? How is God going to do it? And we were touching on it already today as we, as we draw, continue to draw to the light. God changes our view of sin and it becomes distasteful to us. Are you with me? So that is the, the key then. Is that what God expects? And if it is, then the next question has to be how? But if God expects it and I start arguing with it, now that's a big problem. Does that make sense? Now, can you change yourself? No. Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Can you who are accustomed to do evil do good? No. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Does that make sense? Do you realize that you and I don't even... Hatred for sin is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift for God, from God.
Your desire. I remember when early in my walk, I was doing things that I knew I shouldn't do, and I felt no remorse. None. And I knew that was wrong. Do you know what I prayed for? Remorse. You know what God gave me? Remorse. It's a gift. But I have to go to Jesus for the entire process. I have to submit and yield to it. I have to believe him. Does that make sense? But if I don't believe him, then I can't submit to his process. So in the next study, we're going to address this issue. We're going to look at it. And we're going to find... Um, the answer to that question. In fact, does anyone have great controversy with them? Arg. Oh, you got it on that gizmo? Okay. Then we'll probably look at it tomorrow. There's a couple chapters where Ellen White really does address this uh, clearly. She gives some clear light to it. So we will look at that. Okay. Um, what is my next? All right, I still have some time. Okay, now this thing I'm going to share with you. What, what did this outer curtain represent? Does anyone remember what this curtain was made of? What was it? It was linen. What, cover, what color was it? What did it represent? It represented the righteousness of Christ. When the sinner, when the sinner came in here and asked... For Jesus to be his savior, confessed his sins as a sinner, he was covered in the righteousness of Christ. And in the process, he is covered in that righteousness. Now watch this. Don't get confused if you have questions, because this might get some ganders up. Stay with me. In the process, I ask Jesus to ask for forgiveness. I rededicate my life to Christ. I come into the holy place experience and I ask for the infilling of the Holy Spirit as I'm spending time in the Word and in prayer. I'm involved in this daily experience, right? Okay, let's say I'm studying the Word and all of a sudden the Lord reveals to me a sin in my life. I was doing something I wasn't even aware of it. Let me tell you, if you're sinning and you're not aware of it, is it charged against you a sin? No. But when you become aware, now it is, are you with me? Now you've got to do something about it. If the moment you become aware, oh, I didn't know that was wrong, Lord. I have to go back out here to the brazen altar and ask for what? And recommit my life to leave that in the past. If I respond immediately, when that is revealed to me, I remain covered because I'm in the process. Are you with me? Now, now, this covering does not cover known sin. If I willfully choose to sin, I leave and head out here until I come back and ask God to forgive me for that. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yes. Okay. Is that good? All right, where did I leave off? Because I lost myself. 15. Okay, number 15. While the investigative judgment is taking place, what is my part? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do know you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified. So while the investigative judgment is taking place, Jesus is asking us to cooperate with him by entering into the investigation by comparing our lives with his. 
And when we see something that's out of harmony, we go to Jesus. Lord, cleanse me of this. And while he's cleansing up there, he sends the Holy Spirit for the cleansing down here. Does that make sense? You with me? Desiree, that make sense? Okay. While th th this is a call to cooperate with Christ in the investigative judgment, that while he is working up there, cleansing the sanctuary, he wants to cleanse us down here. So he wants to cooperate. And so asking him to examine us, and, and what we're doing is we're comparing ourselves to his word, to the life of Christ. Anything out of harmony with that is called a sin. Are you with me? So he wants us to do that so that he can be changing us. Amen? All right. And we touched on that in our last study, so I won't spend more time on that. <clears throat> okay, now what we're going to do from here on out, we're going to look at the operation. So we're, I'm just going to read through this. Note, we must search our own hearts and lives by comparing ourselves with Jesus and his law. We are not irrevocably locked into salvation by one initial or isolated act of believing. We are called to continue in Jesus. There must be a sustained, persevering commitment to him, a continuous personal union with him, and this is accomplished by choosing him as our Lord and Savior. How often? Every day, the daily experience. Now remember that on the Day of Atonement, Israel was searching its own heart to make sure everything was right between its soul and its Savior. We are doing the same. Number one, this is the out-of-court experience. Our initial choice to receive Christ by faith puts us in Christ. At the moment of our initial commitment, Jesus gives us the legal right to live forever with him. Can you say amen? He gives us the legal right. Now let's look at the holy place, next to a holy place experience. Our sustained habitual faith choices to keep on receiving him keeps us in Christ in a state of perfect security. Remember we talked about the daily experience of yielding to Jesus, keeping him upon the throne of our heart, amen? Number three, consciously and deliberately we must renew our surrender to Jesus' control on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. This is what the Bible means by abiding in Him, continuing in the faith, enduring unto the end, keeping ourselves in the love of God, and holding fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. Does that make sense? It's spending time and recommitting. Now, I want to show you, I want to give you an illustration. Do you all know what this is? It is an umbrella. Let's say it is raining outside and you're getting wet and you want victory over wetness. You don't want to get wet. You want victory. And all of a sudden, you see your friend Jesus is carrying an umbrella. So you go to Jesus and you get under the umbrella with him. Okay, you ask him. He says, of course. Now, you no longer are getting wet. Right? You now have victory over wetness. Amen? So then you go, whoo-hoo, I have victory. And so then you go back out into the rain. Victory is never apart from Jesus. It is Jesus. Are you with me? You know, right now, I've shared with you that before I gave my life to, to Christ, my life was a mess. If today I chose not to meet with Jesus anymore, it wouldn't take long before all those old sins would come back into my life. The only thing that keeps me sustained is the power of God. Are you with me? Does that make sense? It is only Jesus. All right, let's continue. Number four. 
one factor and one factor alone can jeopardize our security and take us out of Christ, and that is our own will, our own decision to do things our way. So one element of risk remains, but that lies within ourselves. While no man or demon or circumstances can destroy our security in Jesus, we can destroy that security by carelessness or perversity or neglect. Are you beginning to see what the fear factor is? Is it God that we should be afraid of? Who should we be afraid of? Ourselves. God has given us the freedom of choice. Let's continue. Number five. So in other words, it's making the choice every day of keeping Jesus on the throne of our hearts. Amen? Number five. Accordingly, when our individual cases are reviewed in the judgment before Jesus comes to bring his reward with us, only one matter will need to be investigated. Did this man or woman continue to abide in Jesus? Remembering that an abiding relationship with Jesus is always manifested in a life of obedience to his commandments. Amen? We're not saved by club membership. We're saved by our loyalty to Christ by accepting him as our Lord and Savior. And we make that decision every day. So really what's investigated is the daily experience. Does that make sense? Am I getting ahead of you? You have that glassy-eyed look. Have we gone too long? Okay. Let's take a look at number six. In the end... We pass judgment on ourselves. By the consistent quality of our personal day-to-day -day choices, we are now deciding or sealing our eternal destiny. A godly character is made up of the thousands of individual choices which we are now making in response to the Holy Spirit's promptings. Does that make sense? Number seven, at no point in time, either at conversion during our Christian lives or at the judgment, does God act arbitrarily to override or manipulate our power of choice? The decision of heaven's courts are not arbitrary. It is our decision that determines the verdict. Heaven simply recognizes them. At the judgment, God takes note of the current quality of our commitment, our current orientation of heart and will, and places his seal of confirmation upon the lifestyle or character that we have consist consistently chosen. God's verdict in the judgment simply discloses and vindicates the quality and direction of our habitual personal choices. Make sense? You know, I cannot say enough about our thoughts. <clears throat> and I know that many of you probably know this, but <clears throat> we really do need to rein in our thoughts because thoughts are followed by what? And actions form what? And habits form what? Which determines what? And many of us do the battle right here. When the focus of the battle needs to be here. By beholding we become, we got to rein in those thoughts. Okay, let's take a look now at the summary. <clears throat> As free moral agents, we are the architects of our own destiny. Our decisions all along the way are what count, not just those at the beginning.
Acceptance of Jesus does not make us into robots. The salvation process is not automatic. Our initial commitment to him does not take away our power of choice. We are always free to choose another master. Accordingly, <clears throat> it is not God's future decisions at the judgment that we need to fear. It is our own decisions, the ones that we're making now, and they are under our control. <clears throat> is God fair? Is he? Is the Father fair? Has this give you a different view of him? Is he, is he, we're to fear God in the sense of respecting him. But really, what we should be terrified of is not even the devil, it's ourselves. Summary. As free moral agents, oh, I'm sorry, note, these considerations should not rob us of the quiet assurance that all Christians may have. They only protect us from the false assurance of resting comfortably in a relationship that has never existed or one that we have since lost. And number 16, when the investigative judgment is done, what verdict is reached? Revelation 22, 10 through 14 says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. When the world has made their choice, probation closes. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who are eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin. And so we find that the last thing that Jesus does is the removal of sin from the sanctuary. And when his work is done, he comes to take us home. Number 17, is Jesus able to secure my case before the heavenly court? Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation in those who are what? In Christ Jesus. And, and how often are we in Christ Jesus? Daily. Daily. Now, please, you don't have questions? Really? On that? Any thoughts on that? I'm going to flesh this out a little more in the next two studies. All we did here is we looked at the mechanics and how the thing operates. We saw that the Father is a presiding judge, not the acting judge. He is present. No, excuse me. Is that how it works? Yeah. And Jesus is the one who is doing the judging, not the Father. Okay? Then we brought that out. And your friend. So if you had to, had to go to court and you found out that your best friend was going to be your lawyer, you'd feel good. Then you found out that he was also your judge, you'd feel pretty good. But we can't take ourselves out of his hands. The one, the one thing that is the variable here is our own choices. Does that make, does that make sense? Um, give me an example. Uh, okay, so I have a friend right now that uh, a few years ago came back to the church, started learning all this, these wonderful things about the sanctuary and judgment and all this, and uh, because of his devotional life, uh, his, his spiritual life is now in shambles and doesn't feel like he has a choice. His spiritual life, so he's having a daily...
So he so he dis discontinued his devotional life, and this stuff started coming back. Okay, and does he feel that he's gone beyond the point of no return? Is that what he's saying? That's what he's saying. The devil is, I run into more kids, the devil's hitting this with them. Um, it is very, very frustrating. No, you know, the thing is, how does he feel about that? Is he upset about that? But is he upset about his condition? Does it bother him? Yes. Then, then the Holy Spirit's still working on him. The Holy Spirit has not given up. You tell him that. Brother, if it's bothering you, if the Holy Spirit wasn't working in your heart, your condition would not bother you. So there is hope for that brother. And so you just got to remind him. Say, you already tasted and see that the Lord is good. The Lord will forgive you. And, 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 and the thing is that his, his forgiveness is greater than our sin. But uh, he's just going to have to come to the point uh, make the decision to go against how he feels and get back into the Word and meet with him every day. The Lord will change his feelings as he did the first time. He already has an example. He knows that God can do it, and he will. Get into desire of ages. Uh, that's kind of simple right now, just with you and I talking here, but that's one angle that I would take him. That's one of the things I ask the kids that come to me with that. I said, does your condition, condition bother you? Yes, it does. Wh where do you think that's coming from? the Holy Spirit. So, obviously, he hasn't given up on you. I can't what? I can't return. Okay. There were two questions in there. Okay, the first one, I like to bring out in the spirit of prophecy, and this brings up your point too, of what of the line that Satan pulled on the angels that had been when they all got kicked out. Uh, there were some that wanted to go back. I think just prior to that, actually, they wanted to go back, and and Satan said, "You've gone beyond the point of no return." And Ellen White says that they hadn't, but they believed him. And then I bring that out. Say, dear friend, he is telling you the same lie. These guys were lost for believing it. You can't afford to believe that lie. You cannot afford. So that's one thing I bring out. So then the second point, and that's the one you're driving at, was when do you know? Okay. This is how I explain. This is, remember I said the only sin that God cannot forgive is the one that we don't ask for forgiveness for, we don't try to get away from. Okay, this is how I explain it. Um, my son, when he was a little squirt, he got an ear infection that lasted six months. We had him on six different antibiotics during that time period. And the ear infection, what it does to the, the, that thin membrane that helps you hear, it scars it so it becomes more difficult to, to hear. When we sin, we are scarring our conscience. And each time we pursue and press that, 
we're making it a little bit more difficult for God, to hear God. So the unpardonable sin is when we come to the place and we no longer hear it. So the person, and this is my understanding, and please correct me here if I'm wrong, but the person comes to the place that the wrong they're doing, they no longer see it as being a big deal. But if this person is disturbed over it, then they haven't gone to that far. Does that make sense? So that's why fooling around with sin is dangerous because we're deadening. You know, I have marveled. I'm looking at our time. I have marveled. Um, we do not understand the power of deception. I mean to tell you, human beings, I'm sorry, listen, I put me in this category, but we're dumber than a box of rocks. We do not understand the adversary we're up against our own sinful nature. We can so easily deceive ourselves, it's frightening. I, I talk to people who, are, who can justify an adulterous affair. Adventists, who can justify, but God wants me to be happy. Didn't you know that? They can justify, and in their mind, they don't see anything wrong with that. When we allow and we toy with sin in the life, it starts, it goes viral, man. It affects everything. And we cannot allow, you give the devil a foothold, it becomes a stronghold. And it's amazing. Just, just let your mind sink on this just a little bit. Ellen White makes this comment that completely blows my mind. She says that, that in the very end, when we return again for the third time, and the last time, and the wicked are raised. You remember that Satan goes amongst them? Ellen White says that when the righteous see Satan working, that we, she makes some, the comment, something to the effect of that we will know then that the only way that we were saved this was through Christ. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, now to me, this is, this is an amazing statement to make it there. Why? Because here Christ had come. We now have a pure nature, right? That is coming. Then... We go to heaven, right? And for a thousand years, we're with Christ. We're with the angels. We're in angelic glory. We're opening up the books. We're seeing, we're judging angels. We're judging the lost. We're seeing this whole process. And when we come back and see him at work, we go, how can it, what in the, do we, we have no concept of Satan's ability to deceive. Dear friend, we cannot afford to fool around with sin at any level in our lives because it blinds us to the voice of God. So the moment the Lord reveals sin in the life, we might have, we've got to run to Jesus with it and ask him to the power of the Holy Spirit to get away from that. Don't fool with it. Yeah, yeah. I will do that. Do you have great controversy? You have it there. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Okay. I'm going to define for you perfection. You ready? It is a moment by moment yielding to the revealed will of God. At that moment, that, that man completely yielded. Do you think that if he had come off the cross, that that man would have lived the life? I submit to you he would have. Or God would have given him a probationary period to prove himself. That's where I am at. That's a hypothetical question. And that's the best I can do to answer it. Does that help? Somewhat. We'll flesh this out tomorrow a little bit more. But that's how I understand that. The moment we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're given a probationary period. We are. And, uh, and we just walk with him each day.
I am coming to the place in my life. I, I really, uh, I see no hope in me, but I see all hope in Jesus. Um, when I do anything, I pray to him because I know I can blow it. And I ask him to be my strength and my shield. Um, I ask him to be my confidence and my courage. Um, and I go forward. And that's what it is. And if there's any fear that I feel, I analyze it. Why? Somewhere I'm not trusting God. And I bring that to him. I'm just, I just want to draw closer to him every day because my hope is only in Jesus. It's not in me. It's only in him. Well, let's close out with a word of prayer. And if we have more questions, I'll be happy to field those. Let's pray. Father, we just looked at the mechanics of the judgment and how it works. And just to get a better understanding that the fear factor isn't we should be terrified of you or even the process, but rather, Lord, our own choices. You have given us the freedom of choice. You respect our freedom to choose. But, Lord, our choices are powerless apart from you. Our promises are ropes of sand. We've got to run to you and ask you to come into our lives that there will be power in our choices to surrender our hearts and minds to you and let you be the Lord and God of our life. We thank you for this. We praise you. And I pray, Father, that if anything I've said here is unclear, that you will bring clarity to it, to your glory and honor. Thank you. Bring us together again tomorrow that we can flesh this out a little more, that our confidence may be great in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.